forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and very frequent peer. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and um, I watch every documentary. <laughs> oh, every single one. Well, no, not every single one, but I'm really excited about our guest. And so I have watched like in the past few weeks, I've watched like every sort of culty documentary that exists. I finished Lula. Do you know about Lula Rowe? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, they have a documentary now called Lula Rich that was just wild. Every time I watch one of those, I'm like, I can't wait for the narrative, like the the fictional show about this and like what actor is going to play this wild person. Yeah. Like I start to like fan cast it. Who would you want to play you? To play me? In like a biopic of your own life. Uh, you know who I really like that's just going to come out of left field? Who? Zoe Deutsch. She was, she's from The Politician and she's been in a couple other things. I don't know. I really like her. She's like a person that I follow on Instagram that I'm like, I, I know you're famous and like, I feel like we would be friends, but we're like not friends. <laughs> like, I like her a whole lot. I feel like she could do a good job. <laughs> it's just like one of those people where it's like, I do think she's a good actress, but also for some reason, I've just been like, I like you, man. Yeah. Are you crushing? Yeah, a little bit. But but who would play you? I have no idea. Dakota Johnson. <laughs> yeah. But we'd have to give her brown contacts because everyone says I, I look like her, but she has blue eyes. Oh. Very interesting. I might actually be getting contacts. Really? Mm-hmm. Way to bury the lead. How come? <laughs> um, I have vision insurance, and I have a possibly false idea that if I had contacts, my face would look more masculine. I don't know if that's true, but I've built up in my mind that without my glasses, I look more masculine. I, again, this could be completely false, but here's the problem. I'll be like, Mal, I want to do this thing, like some, some small change or whatever. And I'll be like, and that'll fix how I feel on the inside. And Mal's like, it won't. <laughs> Weren't you afraid of contacts? Why haven't you ever worn them? Um, I don't want to touch my eyeball. But also, I think it's an obvious psychological thing. Why do you think I'm wearing cute? I'm covering my face. Like I'm wearing, I wear huge glasses to distract from my actual face. But I, it's like when someone dresses rockabilly and you see them now and you go, what are you hiding? <laughs> <laughs> This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. That's all. I just want you to, if you dress rockabilly, I want you to ask yourself, what am I hiding? <laughs> well, if you ever need any tips and tricks with contacts, let me know. Because my contacts fall out all the time, and then I have to find them in my eyeball and then put them back in. Don't tell me that. <laughs> oh, horrifying. Oh, my God. Anyway, we have an amazing show today. Speaking of all the cult documentaries I'm watching, so we're going to be talking to Dr. Stephen Hassan, and we're going to be asking him some tough questions about cults. You've definitely seen him in every cult documentary, um, and he's incredible. And later, we'll be discussing family traditions. Why are they important, and how do you start new ones? 
But first, we have to answer a listener's question. So you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, Seattle. Hi, Allison and Gabby. I'm from Seattle, and I'm a longtime listener. It's amazing to see how far you guys have come from the couch. (laughs) I don't even know where that couch is now. Probably in a museum. Or a museum and or a dumpster? Not a dumpster. A trash site? Where's trash? A dump site? A dump site? Anyway, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Where's trash? Inside me. Landfill. (laughs) Thank you, Melissa. Yeah. (laughs) TLDR. In a relationship, how do you know if they're, quote, the one? Can the signs be different for different people? And then another somewhat related question I have is how independent should you be in a relationship? To give some context, I just started a relationship two months ago. We moved pretty fast. We saw each other every day for a month and got into a relationship and a long distance one too because I had to go off to medical school. We're both 22 and this is not our first relationship for both of us. Despite our age, I think we have a mature relationship. We communicate well. We prioritize each other. We have a FaceTime schedule. The sex is great when we see each other, etc. We recently had a conversation about how we know if someone is the one and something he said stuck with me. He said one of the ways he tells is an instinct slash gut feeling. He just knows if they're not the one he's going to marry. With me, he hasn't had that horrible gut feeling. So yay, that's great. Of course, he mentioned other things aligning as well, like our goals in life, our personalities, love language, etc. But I wasn't sure what the sign was for me. I just like to live in the moment, and in the moment, I'm happy. I feel loved, and I want to give him all my love, but at the same time, I feel very independent. In a previous relationship, I was too dependent on my ex, and I know it wasn't healthy. But with this one, I love him, but also a large part of me knows I'll be okay being alone. I feel like I have a lot of self-love while also being in this relationship. I think the long distance is also a factor in this because we because not having physical contact is hard and is forcing me to spend more time with myself. People have said that it sounds like he's not the one because what I'm saying is I'll be okay if we broke up. But if we broke up, I obviously would be devastated, but I know realistically I can be okay and get through it. Is this a healthy way to be in a relationship? Me and him are open and talk about everything, but I'm not sure if this is a topic I want to bring up to him. What are your signs that someone is the one? Or maybe there is no point in trying to find the signs. Is it too early to tell, even though we talk every day? It's only been two months since we've known each other, and we haven't met all our friends' family yet. And then how independent should you strive to be in a relationship? Right now, I'm feeling a bit too independent. I feel like I should be more sad when I don't see him. And there are definitely times when I do get lonely sad, but I get busy. I'm in med school, so I can't always be thinking about him. But I still miss him and love him. Maybe I'm overthinking all of this. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. You got this. I mean, everything you said seems pretty correct to me. Like, I don't think you have to know two months in. I think you're the right amount of independent. I think... Like, obviously, you're in med school. You don't have time to think about him all the time. But you seem to both, like, feel okay about that. Like, one, me and Allison have both talked about, like, not really believing in, like, a faded soulmate type one. But rather in, like, choosing someone who you have compatibility and you, like, this is the person who makes you happy and who, like, your life makes sense with. And that, like, you are choosing to be with them every day. And so... I think like it's too early to tell, but I also think you, it sounds like you guys have a good relationship. Yeah, definitely. That term overthinking, I think can be applied here. (laughs) Right? 
But it's an interesting thing. I, you know, it's so funny that like you framing this idea that that you love him, but that you would be okay if you broke up as a bad thing. I think that's a great thing. I think that's a great thing. <laughs> I think that's a sign of like a super healthy, wonderful relationship. And that's something that I strive for. And that is sort of like the central thesis of like how to date in a healthy way is feeling like you won't fall apart if the relationship falls apart, even though the 100%. relationship can still matter a lot to you. So I actually think that's a great level of distinction for how dependent and dependent you should be on somebody. But in terms of like signs for the one, I think so much is is just like circumstantial. Like it's yeah. like, is this the right time in your life to settle down? Is this the yeah. right time in your life to make a lifelong commitment? And then is this a person that has the same willingness to take on that kind of commitment as you do? It's future tripping to be like, is this person the one? Because you have no idea what's going to happen. Like you have mm-hmm. no idea. Like you could decide tomorrow this person's the one and then they can get an internship in Japan and leave. Like, do you know what I mean? Like you you can decide in any at any time, you know, this person's the one and then an- anything could happen. So I was wanting to ask you, like, you know, this is like your first time really like living with a partner and you've bought a house with Mal. Was there a moment for you where you felt like, oh, okay, I, I trust this person enough or there's something in this person that I'm willing to take these steps with? I mean, I think it's interesting that my relationship with Mal went from infatuation to like, now this is a real person that I'm with every day. Mm-hmm. It's a funny thing to have someone as a crush that you're idolizing. And then all of a sudden they're like in your room, like, being messy and farting and stuff. And you're like, oh my God, not that I don't fart too. I'm also guilty. But like, you know, just like all of a sudden day-to-day real life. And when that was still good and like that was still fun and and happy and like, I just, it kind of just happened over time. Like I just sort of was like, this has kept making sense. Like obviously there were huge, I mean, we almost broke up over Bernie Sanders. Uh, We almost broke, like, you know, there's definitely like been fights for sure. And like getting, you know, getting to know each other and figuring stuff out. But one of the biggest signs is that the way that we disagree kind of shakes itself out. Like, I understand what Mal needs when we're disagreeing and Mal understands what I need when we're disagreeing. And so even though it's like we sometimes have really different communication styles, the way that that is able to be worked out and like the two pieces of communication styles, specifically while fighting, like actually go together, that was like a huge sign for me. Mm -hmm. I've had relationships where we never argued. And so you would think, oh, that's the one. But like, honestly, like the, the fact that we can work things out is like a huge sign to me. Yeah. And that we just keep wanting to be around each other, that we just keep wanting to hang out. Like, you know, I wake up every day and I'm like, this is my friend. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like that's like, I I assume that if one day somebody woke up and was like, I don't want to be here, then they wouldn't be here. But thus far, you know, every day I'm like, what are we doing, friend? Like, you know, and that'll hopefully continue for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea that there's this gut or instinct feeling can be true when it comes to a gut that they're wrong for you. Yeah. 
But I don't think that you're necessarily going to get that feeling of like, oh, and now I know for sure it's right. (laughs) People always say that. But remember on The Bachelor when Blake was like, I knew Katie was the one when she was playing hockey with my family. I just saw it. And like, so people do have these moments. I think there are definite moments where your relationship progresses, where it becomes stronger and more real. And like you and John was in New York with my family. That was definitely a big turning point for our relationship, you know, where I like was in the kitchen goofing around with my parents and him. And like I saw him as a part of my life in a way he hadn't had the Mm. ability to be a, a part of my life before. And does that mean that? I was like, yes, and now, no matter what, we're good. (laughs) You know, like, I think that gut instinct is really important if it's telling you something is wrong. Yeah. But I don't think that you have to be like, well, I haven't had this overwhelming sense of that it's right, so therefore it's not right, you know? I mean, also in terms of, like, saying, like, oh, if we broke up, you'd be devastated or whatever, you know, I'm like, if you ever want to go – you can go. Like, I will not villainize you. And same for me, you know, hopefully from them. But like, I'm like, you know, if you, you don't owe me anything. Like, it's not like if we're together for 10 years and we break up, I'll go, how could you leave after 10 years? Like, I would, you know, be really sad. And I would be like, I have to, you know, start over. And what are we going to do with the house and all this stuff? But like, I don't want you to feel obligated to be here. I feel like I've worked really hard to be like, I would just figure it out. I will push back that I think if out of nowhere, one day Mal said, I'm leaving. That's not the best. Like, I think that when you have reached a level of commitment with somebody, as we've discussed a lot before, there is, okay, I'm not, this isn't working for me. Can we try to work on this? Like giving a period of like, well, I've invested all of this. I've made this commitment to you. Let's try to make this work. Let's go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Let's work through whatever. (laughs) And then if it doesn't work out, sure. No, there's no, you know, obligation. I did say that if they want to break up with me, they have to sit beans down and say it to his face. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that John has said to me is that he won't blindside me. Yeah, exactly. If there are issues that he will bring them up to me, that he won't just one day walk out, which is obviously what happened with my ex-fiance. Because I think a big fear for me is that like all these things are happening in his head that I'm not privy to because that's Mm -hmm. obviously my last experience. And so Mm -hmm. he's not promising that he won't leave, but he's promising that he will alert me to the processes that are happening as they're happening. (laughs) And I will do the same. Like, I also wouldn't just walk out. You know, I think you have to be in conversation with your partner. But again, like my big thing is like, I think they're the one when you've been together 20 years, (laughs) you know, like I've gotten to a point where I don't think about like, am I not going to be with Mal? And I'm kind of a simple person in some ways where I mean, I'm complicated in other ways, but I'm simple in some ways where I'm just like, great, we're up and we're now what are we what are we going to do today? And you know, like, I'm Mm -hmm. not like in my head being like, overthinking or being like, you know, Mal sometimes is Mal is sometimes very like whatever, but like, I'm sort of just like, great, we're together. And 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 in past relationships, that hasn't really served me, I will say sometimes because I'll be oblivious, like someone will leave and I'll be like, what are you talking about? We just were hanging out every day. So like, don't take them for granted. I do have to plan a date for Mal, I just remembered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I think appreciate the moment, appreciate what you have, but don't feel like there has to be some sign from above that this is like your person. Just be happy every day. Yeah, and, and like, you know, you're you're building that life together. Mm -hmm. And that's what matters more than like, 
I know without a doubt, this is the one. I did it. It's more like, okay, how can we be successful day after day, month after month, year after year? And then you look back as you're slowly dying a very pain-free, lovely death and go, they were the one. (laughs) They're the one because that's who you're hanging out with, man. I don't know. (laughs) Hopefully that helps take some of the pressure off. If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we're going to be talking to our highly esteemed guest, Dr. Stephen Hassan. So stay tuned. back to just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show our guest is dr stephen hassan who is a mental health professional who's been helping people leave destructive cults since 1976 after he was deprogrammed from the unification church aka moonies he's the author of so many books about uh cults including combating cult mind control and a latest book called The Cult of Trump. And um, he's in every documentary I love. Hi. <laughs> Hi there. How are you? So can you start a little bit with your story of of how you got got in, got out, and then realized you wanted to help people? Sure. Essentially, I was a college student. I wrote poetry and thought I'd be a college professor one day. And um I was an upper junior at Queens College. I should say I grew up 1.3 miles from Donald Trump in Flushing, Queens, New York. Um, so I was recruited into the a front group of the Moonies at Queens College in 1974 when I was 19. My girlfriend had dumped me. I was kind of blue. Three women recruiters flirted with me and lied a lot. It's important to emphasize that lying is a big piece of how to discriminate between groups and destructive cults is that legitimate groups tell you honestly who they are, what they believe and what they want from you. And they don't lie or withhold information or distort it. Anyway, I wasn't looking to join a group. I was an introvert. I wrote I read books and, you know, I was a banquet waiter at a Holiday Inn on the weekends to make money. And, you know, I did not realize what was happening to me. But they flirted. They learned all about me. They invited me to meet their friends. I came and heard a lecture. And what I didn't understand was this was an organized thing. They really wanted me to turn over my mind and my body, my money. They wanted me to drop out of college, but that's exactly what happened. And I came to believe after a three-day workshop that the Messiah was on the earth. They didn't say who it was, but that this was an epic time in human history. There would be World War III would happen within three years and God was selecting me to save the planet, and was I interested in helping save the planet? And it made me curious. I I thought, this is weird. You know, it's probably BS, but maybe it's true. And the cults like to play on that 
tiny little bit of curiosity, like maybe what if, what if, what if it's true thing and the fear of missing out. You know, I wouldn't want to miss out if Jesus Christ was walking on the earth and wanted me to help. I'm Jewish, so I didn't believe in Jesus anyway. But the point is, is this, this you know, scarcity in time and how special you are and how there's urgency to do it right away and no encouragement to reflect, to do independent research, reality tests, all the things I tell people now that I'm out of a cult, don't do the same mistakes I did. Of course, back then there was no internet. Mm-hmm. Now there is, but the problem is the internet has been kind of co-opted by very wealthy actors and bots and AI. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I dropped out of college, quit my job, donated my bank account, was made a leader in the group, recruited a lot of people into it, did political activities, including fasting for Nixon during Watergate, because God wanted Nixon to be president, hell with laws and constitution which we just saw mirrored with Donald Trump and the insurrection, failed insurrection attempt. And the Moonies are still big actors in this political stage where after Biden was inaugurated as president, Mrs. Moon, who took over for Sun Myung Moon when he died, had a big virtual conference and had Pence, Pompeo, Gingrich, and all these other major players And more recently, Donald Trump spoke for her group, saying how great she was and how wonderful the group was. So my my former cult is very much, uh, I should say my former cult was present during the insurrection effort through her son, who has a rod of iron ministry, wears a crown of bullets, golden bullets around his head. And he bought a million-dollar compound in Waco, Texas, to train people how to kill people with assault rifles. That his brother, Justin, owns a gun factory, and they sell white weapons. So a big thing that it is talked about in your book is how much political power these cults have. Like, I mean, we're going to get back to some other stuff, but since you touched on it, Scientology, the Moonies, all kinds of stuff. How much political power is happening behind the scenes and how much like political influence do these these places have that are using sort of peace and love as like a front? So one of the major theses of theses of my book, The Cult of Trump, is that what I realized in researching the book is that there were actual cults that were manipulating Donald Trump and who were bringing their followers to become his base. So the answer to your question is a lot of political power. And the thing about cults is members will pretty much do whatever their leader tells them to do. As I learned when I was researching the cult of Trump, there's a conglomerate of cults called New Apostolic Reformation that has 30 to 40 million Americans under their sway and the media has been inaccurately representing them as mainstream white evangelical Christians. They're not mainstream. They don't believe what 
the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. They're more into like a version of prosperity ministry mm-hmm. where believe it and God's going to bless you with money. But what's really dangerous about these groups is they have leaders who basically position themselves as an apostle or a prophet of God that gets direct revelations. And only through their power do they protect their followers from evil satanic entities that are everywhere trying to possess them and destroy them. So it's this very much authoritarian mind control cults with a person at the top of a pyramid saying, I know the truth, you need to be obedient and dependent on me. They speak in tongues, they supposedly cast out devils, they do faith healings. But I have a model uh, that I refer to as the influence continuum for people to wrap their head around the notion that there's ethical influence and there's unethical influence. All things are not destructive mind control. We do have influences, that's part of life, but the authoritarian influences are what I want everyone to be careful about. And um, I have this model, which I call the BITE model of mind control, that stands for, the B stands for controlling people's behavior. Information is the I, thoughts is the T, and emotions. So if you can control someone's behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions, what mind control does is it creates a dependent identity or personality. So like the old Steve was a poet and the new Steve was a Mooney Mm -hmm. who looked at his parents as satanic and Moon and his wife as my new parents, right? So this notion that there's this dissociative identity that's dependent and obedient. And that's where I want everyone to understand that it's a mistake to think, oh, that person's in Scientology or that person's in the Mooney, they must be weak or they must be stupid or they must need to be controlled or, you know, there's something defective with them versus they were lied to they trusted and believed the wrong people. Mm-hmm. They've been surrounding themselves with an information bubble that's mm-hmm. reinforcing lies, like the election was stolen. This is a, one of the bigger lies. Uh, good news is <laughs> that it doesn't. It's not a hundred percent, and it's not permanent. That the person's real self is still there, but it's being suppressed. So my whole work is about encouraging people to reach out to their family and friends or even new people that they meet on the street or online. And if they find out that they're, you know, in a cult, instead of saying, ah, you're in a cult or I'm not talking to you, you have cooties, you go, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. I don't want anyone to get sucked in themselves, but you can you can exercise really good listening and you can exercise good questioning to kind of prod people to start reality testing. When I was reading your book and also watching you on documentaries is that you really try to assert these are not crazy people. Like this is you, these are educated people, these are intelligent people and coming at them with 
accusatory language is not how it works. And I'm even was touched by how often you engage with them by agreeing like, yes, God is good. God is powerful. So can you talk a little bit about like the the mistake of, of that and what you were about to get to, I believe? Yeah. So the whole notion about my approach is empowering people to think for themselves. And so it, I'm not trying to persuade them to think like me. I just want them to think for themselves. I want to teach them about social psychology. I want to teach them about hypnosis. I want people to understand what Chinese communist brainwashing is, what pimps and traffickers do to recruit and indoctrinate people to be willing slaves for them. And by explaining the influence continuum and bite model, I want to then ask, get people to ask believers to go back in time before they met the group or before they adopted the beliefs that they have now and reflect on what was it that made you start taking it seriously? What was it that when you started giving money to them or, or lying to your family because they made you you know, suspicious of your family. And, and in light of teaching them about how other groups operate, I'm looking for people to go, oh, no, I didn't have that experience. Oh, tell me more. And essentially, what works best is to adopt a seeking the truth frame, but like creating a window of going, look, you're telling and it's so interesting that that Trump believers like to say I'm in a, a cult or I've been brainwashed by the liberal media or, or 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 such. And I'm like, oh, I've been brainwashed. Please explain what brainwashing is. <laughs> you know, if I'm missing something, like tell me your sources for how you know what brainwashing is. I'll tell you what my sources are. They're the former military intelligence people who studied the people who had left Chinese communist re-education programs. Like, what's your source for understanding what brainwashing is? But I'm not putting them down. I'm just like, let's seek the truth. And if I'm wrong, convert me. Mm -hmm. Like, please give me the evidence. Persuade me that what you have is real and more, more uh, verifiable than my beliefs, and I'll change. And what I recommend people do is have good boundaries for when they're resourceful and are willing to interact with um, somebody. And like if you're burned out and you're sleep deprived, this is not a time to help someone else. Get some sleep, have some nice food, listen to music, walk in the woods and like recharge yourself. But if you want to help somebody, say, look, you know, I respect you. You seem very intelligent, you know, especially if you have a relationship, past relationship with them. I want you in my life always, but I just don't see things the way you do, but I'm open to learning. Mm -hmm. So you take a turn, share with me, reflect back on what was influential for you. Pick one thing. We'll watch it together. We'll discuss it. And then it'll be my turn to share something with you. We'll watch it together. We'll discuss it. Then it will be your turn. And so let's put our egos aside and just pursue what holds up to scrutiny. Because if it's legitimate, it'll stand up to scrutiny. 
So it's a very love-based, respectful approach versus what I see in the media that's like amplifying the polarization thing and can you believe this other side or, you know, they're so stupid or whatever. Like, don't get away from the name calling. So having said that, I get correctly challenged with why would I write a book called The Cult of Trump if I tell people not to use the word cult. And it really was an ethical, conscious decision of mine to agree to do a book by that title. I knew it was going to be alienating to anyone who was a Trump supporter initially, but my idea in doing it was, listen, people know about Scientology, they know about Nexium, they know about these smaller groups, but to talk about a, a president and to talk about a whole country and political party, that's I've never done that before, and I was convinced that Trump has the malignant narcissism components of destructive cult leaders, you know, the lying, the grandiosity, the need for admiration, lack of empathy, all the checklists. So that was where I started my book with, I know he's got the profile. I know that he thinks he's above the law. I know that he does revenge and sues people and harasses people. So I knew I had that chapter you know, I could compare him with my former cult leader and Hubbard and Jim Jones and other cult leaders. But the rest was really, I wanted to understand how we got as a country to Donald Trump. And what I realized is that we've been on this negative path for at least 50 years, maybe 70 and some of the same bad actors from 50 years ago, like my former cult, the Moonies, are still influencing politicians because of money and power and state actors and intelligence agency crap. Mm -hmm. And I'll take a small diversion and just say a fact that the CIA set up the Korean CIA and the founder of the Korean CIA under oath for a congressional subcommittee investigation, said he organized and utilized the Unification Church for use as a political tool, mm -hmm. which means the CIA took a cult and radicalized them to brainwash South Korean dissidents and people who didn't like the government of South Korea to counter North Korea with the kind of ends justify the means idea. Well, they brainwash people in the North. We need to brainwash people in the South. Let's use a proxy group so it's not an official government thing. And it was only when they moved the Moonies to the US after the anti-Vietnam War movement was ramping up. They're like, let's bring them here and set them up on college campuses, wow. right? So that's when I got recruited in February of 74 was from this. So what the big picture is, is that I'm still waiting for some U.S. government official who's in power to say, oh, yeah, we know what brainwashing is. Mm -hmm. It happens. We do it ourselves with proxy groups around the world. So does Russia. So does China. So does Iran. So does 
every major state actor and educate the citizens of America and the world, this is real. But the problem is, is they don't want to tell the public. They want to keep people ignorant because they can, they're responsible for a lot of the problems that we're having. Mm -hmm. I mean, we trained Osama bin Laden. We gave them, him guns. We taught them how to do stuff. And then they used it on us. Surprise. <laughs> we didn't learn that lesson in Vietnam. We just had 20 years in Afghanistan. Really, we need to go back and go, whoa, like what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of America do we want to be a part of? And what the answer is, we need a lot of educated citizens who are activists, not a fringe group of people, but the bulk of Americans need to understand how the mind works, what ethical influences and what unethical influences, how to protect themselves. And the problem with the government, as I see it, is it's so corrupted mm -hmm. by the system at the point the Supreme Court gave power to corporations to give unlimited amounts of money mm -hmm. to politicians. We opened the floodgates for every criminal in the world to hire a lobbyist in Washington and hire former officials from the from intelligence agencies and all of the agencies that are supposed to protect us, hired them to figure out how to game the system. Mm -hmm. And like, what happened to laws? What happened to checks and balances and ethics is what we need to make sure happens. And right now we're in a situation where I'm just really focused on 2022 and 2024 because if we don't make some radical structural changes, um, we're going fascist in this country. What would you say to push back that by saying that Trump supporters are part of a cult, you're absolving them of any personal responsibility? Good question. So part of the reason I got my doctoral, uh, I did my doctoral dissertation rather uh, on undue influence and the law is because I realized that after 40 plus years of activism, nothing was really changing and more people were getting harmed than ever before. And I realized the law was 100 years out of date. The, the idea is to create, to criminalize. If someone is going to hypnotize you covertly and rape you, they should be put in jail and they should be held responsible for using covert hypnosis instead of saying, oh, it was the woman's fault for, for being attractive that caused the guy to you know do this. Right. You talk about victim blaming in your book right. a lot. So the issue with the law is there are concepts around acts and mental status. And so if somebody does, let's say someone is hypnotized to rob a bank. Mm -hmm. Let's say Patty Hearst. <laughs> right. Biennese Liberation Army, kidnapped from her apartment, put in a closet, raped, and made into Tanya. So she did the act, but was she volitionally fully aware of it, or was it her cult identity that was doing the act? So my take on it, and I'm not, 
you know, I only have an opinion. It will have to be decided by judges of ultimately. But my take is if she robs the bank, she's guilty of robbing the bank. So mm -hmm. it, it, she's not absolved of the guilt of robbing the bank. The question is, what should be the criminal penalties that's appropriate to the crime? And for me, if somebody is deprogrammed, if people understand, <laughs> I would never rob a bank. I have no history that in, mm -hmm. I'm a multimillionaires. I don't need to rob a bank of a thousand dollars. This was, you know, what I was told was that we needed to do a revolution and all that. A judge should be able and a jury should be able to say, look, you're guilty, but we're sentencing you to five years probation and a thousand hours of community service teaching people about mind control. Mm -hmm. Like that's more how I think about things, but rather than than giving people a pass and saying, whoops, you know, <laughs> you are on the mind control, so go your merry way. And that's why with the, the people arrested for, for January 6th, if they genuinely, I haven't seen them, I'm only reading the media, but if they genuinely understand they were lied to and tricked that Biden won the election legally, that right. Chris Krebs really did his job properly, the one that Trump put in place to secure the election, et cetera, and they have genuine remorse how does that serve our country's best interests to put them in jail for five years? Like to me, it's just not doesn't make sense. I guess I'm, I'm wondering even just like interpersonally. Right. So if you have somebody in your family who is a vehement Trump supporter and at this point, being a Trump supporter involves quite a bit of racism and sexism and fascism. And so how do you kind of determine like, are those the values that this person actually has? And therefore, I don't want to associate myself with somebody like that? Or how do you determine, oh, this person has been brainwashed and therefore I can keep them in my life in the hope that they will find themselves again? If I understand your question, I think every case has to be evaluated individually. And I think that it's difficult to generalize. Mm -hmm. Each Trump believer doesn't believe everything that has been espoused by Trump. So you're going to meet Trump supporters who aren't anti-Semitic and who think that the Nazis are bad, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though Trump said, oh, they're fine people. So you really need to kind of target where that person's hooks are in terms of the malevolent beliefs. And to answer the other part of that question, it's really if this is a sister, a brother, a childhood friend, and you have a baseline of behavior to remember about this person. Oh, I knew Steve. Steve was a pacifist. <laughs> Steve didn't say, let's overthrow the government, you know, and put a theocracy in place. So if you have that baseline, the malevolent changes, the radical personality change stuff, I think you should assume is the result of influence mm -hmm. versus assume that they're a throwaway and you never want to talk to them again. Now that said, some cult leader, uh, some cult members say and do things that are so toxic and so hurtful 
that people can't get over that without therapy. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I've had many clients over the decades where, for example, someone's in Scientology and their brother is getting married and wants them to be their best man and be at their wedding, and they can't get permission to go to the wedding, so they don't show up. And the brother is pissed as hell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How can you do what they want instead of be with me? I'm your brother. I want you at my wedding. Or worse, somebody says, mom's in the hospital. She's dying, and she's asking to see you. Please come right away. She's got a day or two left. And the cult member asks the leader and they say, nope, leave the dead to bury the dead. Mom dies and the family who's grieving is like, we're never going to talk to him again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How dare him not be there for mom? Yeah. So they don't understand the real person would have been there. It's the cult identity that's dependent on the cult that's not getting permission so it's really doing your homework to understand whatever cult your loved one is in and the specifics of, like, who are they looking to for advice? Are they looking to Michael Flynn, who's a traitor, in my opinion, and a seditionist, you know? Or are they looking to their pastor in a new apostolic reformation church that's mm -hmm. saying that if they dare to not follow blindly what they said, Satan's going to invade them? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the role of the Internet? Because I think in the past, when we thought about cults, there was like a compound element, right? Like that you, you all lived together, that like you were separated from society. Yep. But now with the Internet, you can kind of be a part of a cult and still continue your daily life. So how has that changed how cults can have more influence? So even when I was in the moon cult in the 70s, Cult members were still having outside jobs, getting married, doing all kinds of, you know, like Tom Cruise was doing movies mm -hmm. and, you know, flying around the world and staying in hotels. What people don't know about Tom Cruise is he's surrounded by Scientologists who have to write knowledge reports. He knows it. And any deviation in any of the policies, he's going to be written up and he's going to be in trouble. So anyway, what I want to say categorically is there's always been a lot of cult members who are not in an isolated compound. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking of cults as just religious cults. And there are political cults, therapy cults, large group awareness training cults, multi-level marketing cults. And cults of personality, where there's a narcissist controlling a single person, isolating them from family and friends, and making them feel guilty if they're not happy, beating them, raping them, whatever. But there's this one-on-one -on -one control. So what's happened over the decades with the internet is the human mind is, is being rewired, as I see it. Like before the internet existed, before computers existed, you wouldn't get on a bus and see everybody looking at their phone. <laughs> if, you, if you see how this is like addictive and our mind needs information. 
So what notifications and what platforms we're on is influencing us all day long. You don't need a compound anymore. You can be mind controlled 24-7 through this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm holding up an iPhone, but it could be any Samsung or any other type of, of smartphone. And what we now know is that you can be hypnotized by just watching a screen, right? Yeah. And ideas can be put into your head without your conscious awareness where you're analyzing because Cambridge Analytica hacked Facebook and got and Google has been mining all of our personal details. And all of these details are on the dark web. And there are companies like Glue selling it to third parties. If they want Allison, they will know exactly what buttons interest Allison and how to incrementally hook Allison with her hopes, her dreams, her aspirations and her fears and her aversions and all of that. So we're in a new period of human consciousness. And, and I think that unless governments can rein in Facebook and tech mm. platforms and protect personal data and get rid of disinformation, like really make a strong effort and not just go, oh, it's free speech. No, free speech means speech with responsibility. And the law is very clear about this. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater if there isn't a fire mm -hmm. because people can be harmed in a stampede to the exit. It's not okay. It's a crime to cry fire. But we're saying on, in the virtual world, it's fine to put out, call fire, fire, fire when there's none and tell lies if we make money off of it. You would think that the internet, you could go on now and read about everything that, let's say, the Moon family was doing and you could read about his crimes and you could read about, you know, the Korean CIA. So you would be less likely to be in a cult. But then also, you know, QAnon, a lot of it exists on the internet. So it's like a double-edged sword. Well, but the bigger issue is there are these brand management companies and search engine optimization. And then there's frivolous lawsuits and harassment suits that cults. So what I'm trying to say is it's not that easy to just go on the internet and find facts that are verifiable on the Moonies. Mm-hmm. And often you have to dig, 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 and you have to not just do the first 10 hits on Google, you have to go 10 pages in. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to just be lazy anymore when it comes to important beliefs. If you're listening to this and you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, you need to not just change what TV network or platforms you're listening to, you need to go back to when, what is the history of vaccination? What is the history of anti-vaccination? It comes back primarily to this one guy named Andrew Wakefield. Have you ever heard of Andrew Wakefield? No. You'd think with all of the messaging to get people vaccinated, the public would like teach about the first person who said it causes autism and it has all these mm -hmm. bad things. There's a great book called The Doctor Who Fooled the World 
all about Andrew Wakefield, and it strips him bare as no credibility, BS, mm-hmm. not science, and learn. Because if you want to be healthy and you want to live a long time, you need a vaccination. You need two, ASAP. And as far as this crap about you can't wear masks, I don't like wearing masks, but, and I I have a booster. I already got my booster because I'm over 65 and I have some health issues, but I still wear my mask to help other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not to protect myself. I'm cool. Yeah. Right. A community consciousness that actually you care about other people. We are a community. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between the methodologies and the beliefs of cults and how the methodology really matters? Yeah. So take my former cult. There was the, if you think of a pyramid and people enter from the bottom up, you can learn this level of information. But as you get deeper in and you go to higher levels, then you find out more and more and more and more. And it's very different than what you're told in the entry level. Mm -hmm. And overall, as an organization, what they tell members and what they tell the public can be completely different, Mm -hmm. which it is. Like they'll say to the public, oh, we're for the family. And, but what the members believe is we are the perfect family. Everyone else is Satan's family. Mm-hmm. The thing about beliefs is it's really tricky unless you, you kind of do the perspective thing and step really far back and go, when was this group started? Who started it? What is his or her credentials? Mm-hmm. What are the beliefs? Were these beliefs stolen from another cult? It turned out the Mooney's beliefs were stolen from another cult that Moon was in. In other words, you need to be able to have the big perspective. And then the other thing is don't believe the words, believe the actions. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says, um, I'm not trying to isolate you, but please turn off your phone and don't contact your family for the next two weeks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the one thing that really stuck out to me too was like the installation of phobia of like what's going to happen if you leave. And I think like, you know, I heard you on a little bit culty, which is Sarah Edmondson and Nippy's um, Nexium based on their time in Nexium podcast. And it wasn't just Satan. I don't want people listening to think like, oh, well, my thing isn't like God and Satan. With Nexium, it was like professional success. And Sarah was talking about how she had the phobia that if she left, she wasn't a real actress. So can you talk a little bit about those phobias? But if someone's listening and they're like, well, my thing is about professional success. And my thing is about selling. I just watched LuLaRoe, LuLaRich, like selling leggings. And it's not about Satan. You know what I mean? Can you talk a little right. bit about so that? So that's multi-level marketing. That yeah. one, I think, is connected to Mormonism, which yep. is a problematic, you know, authoritarian group with a living prophet and all of that problematic stuff. So, I mean, to cut to the chase, people who are under mind control don't believe they're under mind control. And just the very question begins the waking up process. 
And if you're involved with a person or a group or a job of any kind, think about the answer to this following question. If you decided to leave, what comes up for you? Positive ideas of future things or only negative things? Like if you can't imagine leaving whatever you're doing and being happy and fulfilled on whatever level is important to you, spiritual or not, uh, if you can't visualize that, that's a flag to say that there's a potential that there's a phobia in your mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, what happens if I leave this marriage? No one will ever love me again. I'll be alone and I'll be a bag lady or bag man on the st- and homeless. Huh? Really? Yeah. Is that re- is that fear grounded in reality? If you want to leave, will people still speak to you? Uh, that's a real problem because if you're born into a destructive authoritarian cult and you leave, part of their control is shunning. Right. So there is a very real, this is not a phobia. This is an actual legitimate fear and, and not just a likelihood that they'll stop talking to you. It's pretty policy guaranteed that they won't talk to you, which is why a lot of people stay in these groups because they don't want to lose their family members or friends or because they have a job and they don't know where else they would earn a living. Mm-hmm. What I want to say about fear is that we're wired as human beings for survival. This is how we became so successful as a species on Earth. So we have a default to overreact to threats or perceived threats to our security and safety. So if somebody, you know, jumps out of the bushes at you, You're assuming it's not someone wishing you happy birthday. You're assuming someone wants to mug you, right? Yeah. But once you catch your breath, you see who it is. You know, they don't have a knife or a gun and they just, you know, thought it was funny. And you go, ha ha, you know, don't ever do that again (laughs) or something like that, right? So the important thing I want to say to your listeners is, We want to have a reaction to fear, but we need to use our frontal cortex to evaluate, is there actual danger or is this an irrational fear that has no grounding in reality? For example, if you go to a train station and it says, do not walk on the rails, high electricity, Mm -hmm. electrocution risk, Stay off the rails. (laughs) Right. You're going to get fried. Yeah. If somebody comes into your home, draws a chalk line on your floor and says, don't step on that line, you'll be electrocuted with 100,000 volts and you are afraid to step on a chalk line on a carpet, then you're talking hypnotic phobia indoctrination. Right. Because electricity can't be transmitted through chalk and a carpet. Right, 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 right. But you need this part of the brain, not just your amygdala emotional reactions. So, for example, people are like so afraid of the the vaccine and they're not afraid 
of the 11 times risk of getting COVID and like having permanent lung damage or dying. Like they don't have this part of their brain functioning to assess what's actually dangerous and what's an irrational fear. Mm-hmm. Right. I had my booster and I had some soreness in my arm. Mm-hmm. Some people feel a little feverish for a day or two, showing the body's reaction to the to the vaccine. But then you know that your body has what it needs to fend off this virus that's killed 660,000 Americans so far. Mm-hmm. 660,000 people mm-hmm. have died. This is not a hypothetical. Right. This is actual people who you care about, like people know people who've died. Mm-hmm. And it's real. So, oh, we don't want the government mandating my work to have a vaccine. Why not? Yeah. There's no logic to being afraid of this. So I guess maybe the the lack of logic is a signal that somebody is is under bad influence. Yeah. So that that's what I'm trying to say is like, look at the data of the actual risk. The data will tell you the best we have to evaluate what's reality. The beautiful thing about the scientific method is it doesn't have the truth with a capital T. It says we have a hypothesis and we test it out. And if we come up with data that doesn't support the hypothesis, we throw the hypothesis out, make a new one. Mm -hmm. And so it's constantly looking for greater gradations of truth. This has been so helpful. And now I would like to shift into a very silly game show. So you and Gabby are my contestants. This game is called Hypotheticals. I give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions that you have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. Okay. So our first game is, are you a terrible parent? While in a toy store, your child, eight, starts crying because they want a new toy. You explain that you are there to buy a gift for their friend's birthday, not a toy for them. You are only buying one toy today. So they can either get a toy for themselves or pick something out for their friend and go to the birthday party. Your child decides to pick out a toy for themselves and not go to the birthday party. Are you a terrible parent? (sighs) Wow. So I'm a parent. So uh, this is a disclosure. My son just went off to college. And loves it. So my framing always is to empower the child to, you know, grow up to become an individuated adult. And so if my kid said, uh, I want the toy, I want the toy, I would say, I can imagine, tell me, tell me why you want the toy. Oh, okay. So let's put that on the list of future toys for you because we're here to shop for your friend's birthday party. And if they're like, no, I want it. Well, I'm sorry. We're here to shop for our, your friend's birthday party. You're, he's going to let's pick something that he or she will really like. And uh, then maybe we can go and have an ice cream together. That was really beautiful. So you think this tactic of, okay, you can have it or your friend and then they pick it for themselves, not a great tactic? Bad frame. 
<laughs> Bad frame. You'd be encouraging them to be selfish mm-hmm. and and to be off track on what your goal is. You want to you want to show them also that you're human and that you can change your mind too and that you're open to persuasion. You could say, "So please take the next 2 minutes to convince me, you know, why buying a toy now versus why we came to the store is more important." and i'll tell you my reaction to it and then i'll tell you my how i think about it well that's very reasonable for this game <laughs> i know very reasonable i like the idea of because i think it, it it puts the framing of you versus your friend like you can either take care of yourself or you can have friends and i don't i don't like that so i think you are a bad parent so you're agreeing with me i agree with you okay cool and I, I want to get away from the bad parent, good parent. That's a binary. And I say get away from perfectionism. And everybody's flawed and everybody makes boo-boos and everyone gets short-tempered. And always remember, unconsciously, you have your own childhood in the background. Right. And the, you know, what you did like about your child and what you didn't like about your child. Try to make that conscious and just try to be a better parent to your kid than your parents were to you. Mm-hmm. Again, very reasonable, but the hypotheticals exist in a binary. <laughs> it's all in the framing. I it don't is. I usually, you know, when people say you have this, you have a choice of this or this. I say, what's the third choice? Oh, you don't have one. Yes, I do. I'm not playing. <laughs> That's extremely Jewish. Guilty. <laughs> I'm a Jew. Both of us as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of three years is starring in a Broadway play. During the standing ovation opening night, they share a kiss with their romantic interest in the show and the crowd goes wild. Would you stay with this cheater? I don't I don't think I've ever seen actors kiss during a standing ovation, but I understand getting swept up in like the accolades and the like cheering. But I also feel like it would be hard to be with someone who I know is that convincible. I think I would stay. I think I would stay. I would just be like, hey, you're not going to do this like every night. Right. But like I would I would also I don't know. I'm non-monogamous. So I would be like, are you guys having an affair? Like, can we talk about this? What about you, Stephen? I think adults should be able to kiss other adults. The issue is, you know, is your partner committed to the relationship? Mm -hmm. And are they honest? If somebody is not trustworthy, that's the reason to consider leaving. You can also leap to a wrong conclusion that somebody's having an affair or cheating on you when, in fact, they're emotional and they kiss or, or whatever. So I would be with Gabby. I'd want more information. Do you, have you had intercourse? You know, are you thinking of like doing this? You know, trust is really, we need to be surrounded by people we trust. Mm-hmm. And if we can't have a pod of trusted friends and family, that should become a, the main purpose of your life is to develop friends and connections that are trustworthy because the rest of life is built off of that. 
And I'll just add that when people are on their deathbeds, let's say they're 89 years old and they're dying and they're reflecting over their life, it's never about what work they did. It's always about their relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why wait to have any regrets, like spend the time, make the effort and really, you know, feel love and give love and have good people in your life. You also talk about in cults that it, it, there's a lot, and I see this with Scientology, where there's a lot of distrust and you're not really forming strong relationships with people or strong friendships. You don't feel you can trust them. People report on each other. So like, that's one way to know that you don't have a trusted solid group around you. So think about that. Very good point. So the thing about authoritarian cults, mind control cults is the affection and the camaraderie and the closeness is all based on performance. It's all based on being a, a true believer and doing doing the policies. So I was like the model Mooney and then I left and then I became satanic, right? Mm -hmm. But So all my friends only would love me in the group if I was doing what the group wanted me to do. Whereas real love is not conditional upon the approval of anybody they love you because you're of your being you know even if you screw up and do some really stupid things or you get addicted to substances and you get in trouble with the law there's you know recovery and sobriety and mm -hmm. like making amends and moving forward yep i love that but unfortunately they do leave you for their co-star <laughs> But only after after the first year when it gets Tony nominated. Wow. Did that happen to you, Allison? <laughs> I've been left quite a few times, but never by anyone who was nominated for a Tony. Maybe then I would understand I a have. little bit better. Oh, yeah, that's true. You have. <laughs> uh, story for another time. Okay, our final game. Is this a date? You are sitting in a packed airplane. Right after you take off, a good-looking person from first class comes into the coach section, looks around, looks at you, and then asks if you would like to take the empty seat in first class next to them. Is this a date? It's a 10-hour flight. Is that allowed? They bought the seat. Uh, accepting a, a free seat in first class is not a date, but you will need to realize the person probably has an agenda. Mm -hmm. They probably selected you because they're attracted to you. And depending on whether you're attracted to them, I'd probably recommend ask them more about them and why they want they chose me to sit next to them and see if I like the answers or not. Yeah. Like I'm a little on the paranoid. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to be stuck for 10 hours with somebody who is trying to ply me with uh, to try to get information from me or try love bombing or trying to recruit me. But, you know, I just want to state another really important life skill is to be really conscious of your boundaries and what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do and not be willing to suspend your boundaries because somebody's pressuring you or enticing you with money or whatever. I've had people offer me a million dollars to do a case before knowing what the case is. Yeah. And it's like, I could use the million, but 
who would be offering me a million dollars to do a case? And what would they expect? I need more information before I agree to that. And then when I dig deeper, I find out it's a cult trying to get me into a compromising situation. This has been the most educational version of hypotheticals we've ever had. I agree. I think you shouldn't take that seat in first class because they're clearly trying to manipulate you in some way. Right. But, you know, again, because I fly and I really like first class, better <laughs> I would just be really clear with them. What is your expectations? Do I need to talk to you if I ta- say yes? You're not going to touch me inappropriately. You're not going to talk to me if I need to sleep or I need to do more. Immediately put headphones, go, thanks so much, headphones on. There's a set of principles of influence that people should know about. One of them is called the law of reciprocity. And what the law of reciprocity says that if somebody does something nice for you, you feel a, a desire, a strong one, to reciprocate and do something nice back for them. Mm-hmm. It's how MLMs recruit often. It's how a lot of nefarious pimps operate. They buy uh, 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 somebody a great dinner, clothing, shoes mm-hmm. before you know putting the clamps down and beating them up. Right. Right. So if someone's going to offer you something really generous, you need to be able to say. What do you expect in return? And when somebody says, come for a ski weekend, I need one hour of your time to give you to tell you about our wonderful timeshares, mm. but you can ski on us, stay there, eat, and the, the passes are free. Understand that the, the percentages of people who, who think they're going to get a free weekend and not be buying, the percentages are against you. Mm-hmm. So unless you're um, really confident in your ability to withstand all kinds of influence appeals and techniques and just keep saying, nope, 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 whatever you say, I'm not buying it. And just like stick with your guns. Don't say yes to a free ski weekend. Thank you so much for being our guest. This was so wonderful. And thank you for your time and everything. Where can people find more about you and your website and and your books? So my website is freedomofmind.com. If you go, it says learn about undue influence. Some good drop downs. I have a course that's three and a half hours on Udemy. Uh, My books are Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Expert. If you if you care about the planet and, and are an activist, I invite you to learn about about freedom of mind and like practice this and teach others in your community. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about family traditions. Just between us, it's time for topic X X X X X baby baby. This week, I wanted to talk family traditions. Yeah, for me, what separates that from like Jewish holidays? Well, this is what inspired it, right? And this is going to sound a little dark, but let me tell you. <laughs> so, my grandma passed away in October, and my mom, who is Jewish 
through blood, like her mother was Jewish, but was raised with no Jewish traditions at all. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, great. Now I don't have to do Jewish holidays anymore. Because <laughs> <gasps> ah! it was just Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur. And, and she was like, I hate Jewish holidays. I've had to do them for over 40 years. I don't want to do them anymore. I hate them. <laughs> ah! But then what's so funny is that then I called her on Thursday. I, I called her on Yom Kippur. And my mom was like, oh, so we ended up actually having a break fast. You know, Jocelyn called and was like, "We should we do something? And so they came over and they were in the backyard. <laughs> and it was so nice. Were they fasting? No, my family's never fasted a day in their life. Oh, my God. Did you fast? No, not this time. But I, we, I grew up with it. Yeah. Like we grew up with the people over the age of 13 fasting because at 13 in Judaism, you're an adult. And so, yeah, I did that for my whole teenage years all, all, until I went to college, I think. And then we did la- a couple of years ago, we did Rosh Hashanah with Mao's family. But I grew up doing every holiday. I grew up Shabbat every weekend, Friday night Shabbat, Saturday morning synagogue. Saturday evening synagogue. I was like Jewish, Jewish, big time. There, It's hard for me to separate what's like a family tradition and what's just like a Jewish. Although my parents did make Passover very exciting. How? They decorated the whole house. They stapled scarves and sheets to the ceiling and made the whole house look like a tent. Oh, wow. And then they set up all these chairs and all of these like sofas and stuff to make it seem like you're inside a tent. And then they would set up like a fake red like cellophane to be like the sea. And they would do like, I mean, they decked out the whole house. My dad would dress up in a white robe with a beard. And like do the Seder. And like we would have people over from the synagogue. Like it was like, and I had to write a play. Well, had to. I wanted to. I wrote a play every time. And then I made everyone play the parts in the play. And like Passover was like a to-do. Have you, do you still celebrate that every year? Or do you feel like a loss that you don't? We celebrated. I mean, I'm not doing the full Bedouin tent situation that my parents were doing. But yeah, no, I said we celebrated it this year. We had a, we have a Seder plate. We have all this stuff. Our parents, me and Mal's moms both sent us like, Rosh Hashanah stuff like kala and um, and apples and honey. And we did the apples and honey. Cheyenne came over. I mean, we're still doing all of that stuff. It's interesting because there's also with Judaism, you know, I'm not planning on having kids, but like, you know, there's the circumcision is such a big thing. That is a huge religious tradition. But I don't think that I would feel comfortable doing that to a baby. You know, it's kind of parsing out like all this stuff that I learned young to like, what do I actually feel? And what do I want to keep that's important? Apples and honey. Love it. I'll do that every year. You know what I mean? But like Mm -hmm. some of the other aspects, I'm like, Hmm. Well, like one of my weird family traditions is that I meet my parents in Vegas for Thanksgiving. (laughs) That's like, see that rules. (laughs) That's become like a tradition. That's like so fun. I mean, it's not going to happen this year because of COVID, but Mm -hmm. you know that like we have this non-traditional Thanksgiving, but that we still like spend it together Yeah, is really lovely. Have you and Mal created any family traditions like the two of you that you hope to continue? Well, We've gone for the baby for Harper's birthday both times. We're like, we're going both times. So that like is kind of like, okay, well, we'll be in New York around Halloween for Harper's birthday and stuff. A lot of them are Jewish. We sometimes will light Shabbat candles. Like we still kind of 
have all these like I have so many Jewish artifacts because all of my grandparents are dead and I had like five grandparents. So I have like candles and plates and and all this. I have all of this stuff. Um, so we you I mean, we use it. We did Hanukkah. We do all of it. I don't know. We got, I'm, I'm trying to think. It's hard because we started dating like during, you know, like we were dating for like a year. Then COVID happened. We haven't really had time to like do like yearly tradition type stuff. Something fun to think about, though. Yeah. I mean, my family for Thanksgiving, we would go to my dad's AA meeting because his sobriety date was around Thanksgiving which is a common sobriety date for a lot of people. We would have Thanksgiving dinner and then we would go afterwards to his AA meeting so he could get his chip for the year and then he could give a little speech. And then sometimes me and Cheyenne or my me and my mom, we give a little speech and we present it to him. That was always kind of a nice little like family tradition. And that meeting is usually packed. I would say Thanksgiving and Christmas are real heavy times for Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I think there's like a lot of stuff that maybe I wouldn't even realize is different than what other people are doing. Yeah, that's what's interesting is like realizing what your family traditions are. Like I realized like my past birthday, like nobody sang to me because I was like out here. And like in my family, like we always tell the waiter that it's your birthday. And then the waiter always brings out the thing and sings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's just like happens. And then, you know, this birthday like didn't happen. And like I went to dinner with John, but like fucking John doesn't do that you know so then I was like sitting there being like well it's like I guess the waiter's not gonna sing to me and Ah! then I realized that like I had to tell him because his birthday's coming up and I was like it's really important for you to know that like part of my culture is having the waiter sing happy (laughs) birthday to you (laughs) and I was like so it's going it's going to happen and I also expect it back (laughs) yeah exactly oh my god my mom's nuts And one of the things that she does on my birthday is start texting me and be like, and pretend like she'll be like, oh, labor has started. Oh, this is around the time that I was walking around the hospital. Oh, this is around the time that Maymay and Pepe showed up, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I was born at 4.57 in the morning. So she's like keeping it up. Like, wow. She's like, and and you were born or whatever. And but Mal was like, what is she doing? Because we were in person for my birthday. because We were in Naples for my birthday this year. And so with my parents. And so my mom was coming in and being like, it's starting. And Mal was like, what is she doing? And I was like, she's pretending that she's in labor with me again. And Mal's like, I'm sorry, she's what now? And I was like, yeah, she kind of does this thing where she pretends that I'm she's giving birth to me again. And Mal was like, okay. But that's a family tradition. So I it's cute, but it's also so disturbing. <laughs> it's also cute, but it's also like to realize that other moms are not doing that was embarrassing. But also that's a mom embarrassing you kind of thing. And my mom, because she's on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, when it turns midnight on my birthday, she calls me, even though it's 9 p.m. out here. So I always have to make sure that I'm, like, available for a call at 9 p.m. the night before my birthday. (laughs) But that's – you know, so I think it's fun to sort of, like, think through these things that we kind of take for granted and realize that they're, like, fun traditions. And then, like, what can you add? What You know, like, how do you build new ones with people? I even subconsciously don't realize how much I am just doing things that my mom did. 
Yeah. But like, just, you know, and then I'll be like, time for bed. Like, like, I'll just, I do Bedtime for Bonzo, which is a movie from the 50s. But I'll be like, okay, time for bed. Bedtime for Bonzo. I say that all the time. Yeah, it's a movie from the 50s. About a monkey. One big thing with my family is when you get home, you go home, James. No, I've never said that. That's from uh, a movie, I think. Probably. Melissa, you want to share some family traditions? Yeah, I think family traditions are really cool. Uh, Most of ours are around holidays and foods like I think most people are. But I also think that it's interesting how, for example, on Christmas, my family, we're more like we dress up on Christmas. But my sister, her husband's family, they're more like everyone's wearing pajamas on Christmas. So then like Mm. that kind of got it got changed. So it's just interesting. Like as your family grows, then Mm -hmm. things change. So that's what I like about traditions is that they're they they're traditional to a point but like having more family just like it's I think when you incorporate other traditions in it just strengthens your family bond too Mm -hmm. yeah they morph and change Mm -hmm. and become new in a way yeah what do we rate this episode my god I rate it 26 out of 25 cults (laughs) <laughs> very creative <laughs> I'm sorry I was talking about this before we started but you guys should watch the Heaven's Gate documentary on HBO I sobbed so give it a watch it's really something else I will rate it 30 out of 22 pajama days <laughs> I'll give it 80 out of 72 hmm could they be the one <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, thank you to our best hypotheticals player, Dr. Stephen Hassan, for being a guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, I want to plug Allison's Patreon, which is Emotional Support Lady. You should go follow Allison's Patreon. And then I started a Patreon patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. So um, if you love us and you love our work, please go uh, sign up for our Patreons. There's going to be a lot of content there from each of us. And we love you guys and we want to give you more. Okay, bye. Bye. Forever. Dog.